I think two of the most powerful words are what if. And I think so often we're like, well, what if I fail? What if it doesn't work? What if, and I turn it around. I'm like, what if I'm able to make this work? Being extraordinary is having a relentless commitment during the unseen hours to work towards mastery of your craft and focus on the fundamentals. Being extraordinary is about doing the little things right every single day. In today's episode, I put on my Mickey Mouse ears to listen closely to Walt Disney World radio host Lou Mangiello. Lou was a former attorney who left his practice 15 years ago to pursue his passion for all things Disney. He is the host of WDW Radio, an award-winning podcast about the Disney brand, parks, and studios, as well as the author of multiple books and audio tours about the Disney parks. He offers mentoring, consulting, and workshops to those looking to build their business and brand and is a sought-after keynote speaker who shares the importance of exceptional customer service as well as the power of social media, podcasting, live video, community, entrepreneurship, and how to follow one's dreams and passions. I was first introduced to Lou by my brother Jeremy, who shares his love for all things Disney and found this to be one of my all-time favorite interviews. Here is my conversation with the super talented Lou Mangello. So Lou, when you hear the phrase or term unseen hours, where does your head go and what does that make you think of? So a friend of mine used to do a podcast called The Unsexy Side, and it was the unsexy side of entrepreneurship. And I wish that she would have still continued that because that's the thing that people don't see, right? So like when I was a kid, being an entrepreneur meant you were being meant you were a bum, right? It meant you, you didn't have a job. <laughs> now it's like the sexy word. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur and they see what's on Instagram and they see the success. And what they don't see is the unseen hours, the unsexy side and the sacrifices and the time that you invest, right? It's all sort of the, the, the roots and the dirt underneath that big, beautiful tree that everybody sees on the surface. And I think that's the, the first thing that instantly came to mind. Oh yeah, I agree completely. Unsexy side. I love that, that term. You know, as you know, my brother is who kind of united us and he's a huge fan and, and advocate and champion of yours. Uh, and, and he's shared a few things kind of about the work you do, but more importantly, the transition that you made many, many years ago when you left that corporate life, the, the law life to pursue a real deep passion. Uh, to talk to me a little bit about your journey and what went in to making such a courageous leap. And then we can really unpack the unseen hours of the amazing work you do now. Yeah, the, the Reader's Digest condensed version was um, I was a lawyer living in New Jersey. I ask you to hold neither of those things against me. Um, I had an IT consulting company on the side because I just didn't love to sleep. And I was always a, a tech nerd since I was a kid. And I think the idea of always being in the service business and watching one too many infomercials late at night made me think like, I want to make something once and resell it. Um, I've been a fan of Disney, specifically like Walt Disney World, since the parks opened in 1971. I was three years old and my family went back every year. And I really set out on a personal challenge. Like, can I write a book and can I get it published? And I wasn't honestly smart enough to write about the law or computers. So I wrote the book that I wanted to read, which was a, a Walt Disney World trivia book. Um, learned everything I could about the book publishing industry, found a publisher, Quick takeaway lesson, you only need one yes. You only need one, which is good because I only got one yes from all the publishers I'd reached out to. Um, and, you know, long story longer, this book turned into a website, a community, a podcast back in 2005. And uh, fast forward a couple of years, I left my job. I sold everything I had in New Jersey and I moved to Florida. And, you know, I, I basically talk about, you know, one side of my business is I really just sort of 
talk about this thing in this place that I love so much um, and now try and help other people do the same thing and turn what they love into what they do. Okay. Well, that's smart. Oh man. I love, I love the story of anyone following their passion and, and don't undersell the fact that took a tremendous amount of courage for you to leave the stability of law and IT and pursue something that, that made your heart beat a little bit quicker. Uh, and I also love the fact that you were so ahead of the podcast curve that all of us are seeing right now. I mean, you, you had to be, you know, one of the originators in kind of its infancy uh, t- talk about, how you had the vision and foresight to know that this was going to be the medium that it's turned out to be. You know, I'm I'm grateful that you call it vision and foresight because there's a fine line between vision and foresight and absolute stupidity. Because so, <laughs> in, in 2005, again, I, I came from a tech nerd background. I heard about this thing called podcasting. And I literally had to ask Jeeves, like, what is a podcast? But I knew that the spoken word was so much more powerful than anything that I can write. You know, the conveying of emotion and passion and laughter and tears and anger and all these things. Plus, I was a horrible typist. So I, I really got on the, the podcasting train very, very early on, like spring 2005. It really was just a few months old. And, you know, even to this day, we do to a certain degree. But having to explain to people what a podcast was it's been a very interesting journey, um, but I love, love, love the medium. It still is the heart of what I do. I think it's brilliant. And even when you first started, I'm trying to think of 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 how podcasts were disseminated because it wasn't, we didn't have Spotify and I don't even think we had iTunes to the degree that we had it now. That was pre-iTunes. So basically were these just MP3 files that you shared on a pretty basic website and how were people listening to it? Absolutely. It, it's not just what is a podcast, but how do I find it? How do I get it on my little iRiver, you know, MP3 player? There was a huge technical hurdle to that because there was no podcast app. You're right. Initially, it wasn't even in um, iTunes. You had to have a player. It was called like Lemon. Like there was all these like weird little like mini players. But, you know, it goes back to this idea of having community. If, if you have a community of people that like you or love you and love what you do, they'll find a way to find it. And, and as obviously the technology got much easier and more accessible, um, it, it it was remarkable. Because as soon as you put your podcast out, you're like, now you just sit there and wait. Right. Like, is anybody going to find it? Is anybody going to even download it? Is anybody going to like give feedback? So that's always that weird, you know, uh, dead zone from the time you put something out to the time you wait for the feedback to see if it's actually working. I like it a lot. I, I want to go back on something you said before about you only need one yes, especially when we're talking about the, the book publishing world. And you said, fortunately, you only got the one yes. Um, talk to us about that process. And then I assume because that first book did so well, that became the epicenter to which the rest of this dynasty has been built. Uh, so talk to me kind of about that process, what went into writing the book, what went into pitching it to the publishers, uh, and then how that spawned the community, the podcast, the, the social influence and everything you have going on. You're very generous with the word dynasty, but I'm going to, you, you just made my day. I'm just going to hang on to that one for a while, but so I'm going to show you how old I really am. So this is 2003. There was no vanity publishing, right? You couldn't just submit a document to Amazon. And a few days later you have a book. In order to get a book on a shelf, you literally had to have a publisher. So I went to Barnes & Noble. If you remember Barnes & Noble, these big stores with lots of books in it. And I went to the travel section. I took every travel book off the shelf. I sat literally, like I sat in a corner on the floor and I wrote down the name of every publisher and got their address. I learned what the process was. You have to send out a query letter and then a first chapter and all these different things. 
And I still have in my closet 47 rejection letters from publishers who said, you don't have an agent. You don't have already have a book. There's all they gave me all these different reasons as to why they could not or would not publish the book. I found one small publisher who believed in what I was doing. Uh, I'm getting choked up thinking about it because I wouldn't be here without them. But they signed me to a three book deal. Um, and I'll never forget the phone call because as we're chatting, I said, look, we want to sign you. We want he goes, don't quit your day job. You are not going to make a fortune selling books, which because we we sort of do the math in our heads. We're like, OK, if 30 million people go to Walt Disney World every year, I only need one percent of them to buy my book. And that's good. It's not actually how it happens, but right. it without a doubt was the first step along this journey. And I, and I would not be here talking to you if it wasn't for the book and my publisher. Uh, well, first of all, that's remarkable that they came right out of the gate with a three book deal. But I love the unsexy side slash unseen hours of the fact that I can picture you in the corner of a Barnes and Noble with stacks of books going through them uh, and not only looking up the publishing info, but probably getting a feel for that space and that genre, what's missing and where can my book fit into this piece? Because having market share in a very crowded book world uh, is really, really tough. So so the book must have done fairly well right out of the gate uh, in order to spawn you actually quitting your day job and deciding to to go all in. So, so talk to me about that. The goal from the beginning was, can I write a book and can I get it published? It was never about money. It was certainly never about leaving this career that I had spent my whole life preparing for and my parents paying for. But so I write the book. I create this little two-page brochure website and about me page and, and a link to Amazon to go and buy the book. I start getting all these emails from people who are reading the book, asking me lots of questions. I start turning those questions into articles, which is what we called blog posts back then. Yep. 2004, remember the word social and media, like there, it's not a thing yet. So right. I have a V bulletin discussion forum that I launched in January, 2004, and the first night I turned it on, 29 people signed up. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, there's 29 other dorks sitting in their basement that love Disney. Because there was no Disney community that I knew of. Right. And I'm like, this is fascinating that there's other semi-adults that are out there that enjoy this. But that 29 turned into 100 and 500, 1,000, 5, 10, 15, 30, 50. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, there is something out there. There is a community of people out there that are looking for a place to belong to and that really was probably the most pivotal moment for me realizing that wait a minute like this can become something and then the podcast started again i did it because i loved it i just wanted this sort of outlet and if anybody listened that was great um and again that that other sort of seminal moment was being in new jersey um it's probably 2006 or so uh, my wife comes running downstairs. This is what a phone used to look like. She's holding the phone in her hand. And somebody on the side says, hey, um, you know, so-and-so from ABC company. It's not ABC, but, you know, fictitious company. I, I love what you do on your podcast. What do you charge to advertise? Oh, yeah, you're in the big leagues now. And I looked at the phone and it was like in slow motion. I was like, Whoa. <laughs> I was like, well, <clears throat> let me get back to you. I'll put together a proposal and let me. And I hung up the phone. I was like, well, now what do I now? What do I do? I had no, I, I'm like, literally, again, I'm, I'm now probably on like excite.com going, how much do you charge to sponsor a podcast and, and um, just sort of figured something out because I couldn't believe that somebody was willing to pay me for this thing that I was doing anyway, that started the, the monetization of the show and eventually led me to being able to take a, a massive leap of faith. 
Um, I said, look, if I want to do this, if I want to really turn this into a business, I need to be where what I do is flying back and forth from New Jersey is not only expensive. I'm leaving my family. I had two very young kids. Um, so I sold my house um, and I brought money to my closing, which is not the way it's supposed to happen, but it's, you know, 2007 and the market is just awful. And I moved into a house um, that my parents rented for me. Like I never, like they drove to it and like, yeah, this is a good place. You should rent it. Um, because I, I was afraid. I think two of the most powerful words are what if, and I think so often we're like, well, what if I fail? What if it doesn't work? What if, and I turned it around. I'm like, what if I'm able to make this work? What if I'm able to find a way to do this? And I had to do that, not out of fear of failure, but out of fear of regret. Cause I didn't want five, 10, 20 years to go by and go, I wonder what would have happened. What if, what if I would have tried this? I wonder what, so again, fortunately it, it worked out, but it, it you know, it, when I say leap of faith, it was a very, very scary time, especially when there's a lot of people like friends that don't believe in what you're doing. Yeah. Well, my goodness, man, you're giving me the goosebumps right now and you're retelling of that. And yeah, that what if is so powerful. And, and I always look at it also through the lens of, well, what if I keep doing something that I'm not passionate about and just kind of, you know, have on the mental cruise control for the next 20 years? That that's not a what if that you want to answer. So your your courage is uh, certainly to be admired. And it it sounds like that ramping up happened pretty quick. If 2004, 2005 is when you first started to do this. And then you said 2007 is when you actually made the leap to move. Yeah. So I ended up moving uh, probably early 2008 is when I did it. But to your point and to the name of your show, you don't see, you know, remember, I was still I was working a full time job as an attorney. I had my IT consulting company on the side. So my day looked like I'd get up in the morning, see my family, have breakfast. I'd go to court and do a trial. I'd go to a, one of my networking clients and literally be in my suit. I'll never forget. It. I had a company who was a lumber company just starting to network. I'm in my suit on the sawdust covered floor, running cable, trying to figure out why they couldn't print back to my office, seeing clients till six o'clock at night, go yeah. home, inhale my dinner, spend time with my family. And then I really did my work from 10 o'clock at night till two o'clock in the morning every single night. That's the part that people don't see. Yeah, that is the definition of the unseen hours and the unsexy side. Now, if at the time you had young children, I would imagine it wasn't uh, too hard of a sell to get them to move closer to Disney World. But how about the rest of your family? Did did Were people incredibly supportive or did they kind of look at you with uh, an air of caution? I would not be here without them. And you must know that crying is podcast gold because you're going to make me cry. But That's okay. You can um, bring it. We love vulnerability, man. I'm with you. I worked in a firm with my dad. And when I told my dad, hey, I want to start this computer consulting business and it's going to take away. He's like, do it. Go do. My parents were always encouraging of what I did. When I said I wanted to leave and they were behind me 100%. Um, I certainly wouldn't be here without my wife, who since day one, when I said I need to go, I need to go to Disney World to do research. She's like, go. I got this. I need to go and spend time. To Don't worry. I got this. I will admit, though, that my close friends at the time, and I say at the time because we're really not friends anymore, when I said that I was leaving my job to go and, and work on this Disney thing full time, they laughed at me. Yeah. And they said, you're going to be begging for your job again in, in six months. Because um, I, I was... I sort of transitioned from consulting to working in a business where I was the chief technology officer for a medical imaging company, which basically means I ran the network and just did my Disney stuff while I sat in my office all day. So I had a very cushy job. I had, you know, great benefits as well. And I left it to do this. 
when I told him that I'm now selling my house, bringing money to my closing, packing everything I have up into a trailer and a storage unit and going to try and see if I could figure out a way to make this work because I did not have a business plan. Right. They said, we give you six months. Mm-hmm. They said, you're going to be back here begging for a job in six months. It's a very, very eye-opening slap in the face when you hear people close to you say that. I know probably a lot of us who are entrepreneurs or solopreneurs get that. And to be able to move forward in the face of that internal fear and that external negativity is is sometimes really, really challenging. And I think it's why it's important that you do what you do so people hear stories of others who have been able to do that and make it work. That was awesome. (laughs) And it certainly helps that, you know, with your father and your parents and your wife kind of being the main pillars probably made it a little bit easier uh, to, to brush away some of the naysayers that, that weren't as integrally involved. And now has your wife always shared your affinity for Disney or is, was hers more of a support of you as an entrepreneur or, or was she all in with this Disney concept too? Yes. And yes. Um, oh, cool. You know, certainly, you know, Disney is sort of not just my life, it's my business. So I'm a little bit deeper in, but we're a Disney family at home. And I, I will literally never forget the moment that, she was upstairs in the den she's watching TV and I'm downstairs in my office and I came upstairs. I said, you know, I just think that if I really need to give this a shot, I need to go all in. I need to sort of be in Disney. And I don't think the word yes was out of her mouth before I just ran downstairs and started packing. I don't want to even give her a chance to sort of change her mind. So having a support system is is really, really important. But I also want to acknowledge that in all the years of, of speaking and talking and working with other entrepreneurs, I also hear things like my wife would never let me do that. My husband, my parents, my this, my that would never, wouldn't let me do that or they wouldn't buy into that idea. And, and I understand why that's hard. And it's, it's why I love going to conferences and I love a hosting events and things like that, because it lets you meet other people to get that support system. Because I think what we do is difficult for people to understand sometimes we don't do a night, right? We th- that quote about we work eighty hours a week, so we don't have to work forty hours a week is a hundred percent true, and people sometimes don't see it; they don't understand it. And you need people. You we might have a very supportive internal family system, but deep down they might not quite get what it takes to sort of, you know, make the wheel spin um, on that sort of that unseen side. For sure, and and everyone has a different tolerance for their own psychological safety and security. And and I think sometimes when someone sees someone like you that is so courageous and willing to put it all on the line, leave something with so much security to pursue a passion, and I say this respectfully, never to diminish anyone, it, it, it brings to surface some of their own insecurities. And they think to themselves, I could never do that. So it's easy for me to kind of poo-poo on someone who is where, you know, uh, again, I have so much admiration for anyone that's willing to take that type of risk. So yeah, major kudos to you. And uh, you've done a brilliant job of kind of timestamping when you said you asked Jeeves and excite.com. So (laughs) I would imagine doing that stuff in 2004, 2005, right before social media started up, um, that must have been a gasoline on the fire of you building this community. Because if if memory serves, I feel like I first joined Twitter in 2008 and then soon to follow, you know, Facebook. And then obviously a few years later was Instagram. So I would imagine social media just made your job of building a community um, much, mess, much more fluid. Fluid and complicated. 
because now no longer is our attention focused on a single platform. And and look, even in 2022, as we move to 2023, I, I wonder and sometimes think that we will go back to a more centralized system of community because what we're doing now is we're building our houses on rented land and we're dealing with algorithms and the new bright, shiny object. So with each, I used to have this idea of, well, you need to be everywhere. You need to be where everyone is and where they're most comfortable consuming content. And with so many platforms, so many different mediums, so many different attention spans, it's almost impossible because now instead of doing one thing really, really well, we're trying to manage 10 things, possibly somewhat poorly because we're spreading ourselves so thin. So I loved the challenges of of always looking to what's next. Even to this day, I'm, I you get complacent, you die, right? So I'm always always thinking about what's my differentiator, what is next, where do I need to go to be ahead of the game, right? When I started, I've been doing live video every week since 2007. When I first started doing it, it was like this weird, I, quick. If I don't mind, quick story. Same thing. Please, live I love this. 2007. So I had this community and I hear about live video and it just starts getting more accessible. And I'll never forget, I told my very supportive wife, I said, I'm going to try this live video thing. I'm going to be 10 minutes and I'll be upstairs. Six hours later, she comes downstairs. She goes, I hear you through the air conditioner. She goes, Who are you talking to? What are you? And I'm like, I don't know. There's these people and they're what? She's like, What are you talking about? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, it's not even about Disney. We're just having conversation. But it was this real time completely authentic unscripted engagement i'm like and to this day like i still love it like that's the thing that really fuels my fire because it's a conversation we're no going back to what we said before we're not waiting for the responses we're getting we talk about engagement and, and meaningful conversation that's what live video allowed us to do but i think having to be strategically selective in the platforms that we use is is a lesson i learned you know, going along, watching things come and go very quickly as well. You're the smartest guy I ever met. You know, I only have the the pleasure of, of meeting you now, and I can see you are charismatic, you are raw and authentic, you are polished. Like, I can see why you are so great at what you do. I didn't have the pleasure of knowing you in 2007. Was this fairly natural to you or has there been a massive learning curve? Like if, if you and I watched some of your initial videos and podcasts <laughs> from 2007, uh, would you be cringing and would I be laughing? Because uh, if you've made such great progress and, and I know repetition is how we get better at anything. And I go back and look at some of my earlier works and oh my gosh, they give me a stomach ache. But I do know at the time it was the best I was capable of doing. So I've forgiven myself for, for such low quality at the time. So was this something that was just natural to you? Because doing a live uh, six hour, you know, a, a video live for six hours off the, the cuff right immediately is, is pretty challenging to do. So it's funny you say that. And I'm like, please do not go back to episode one of my podcast. Like it's, it's six minutes of, of living hell. Like I have <laughs> no idea why anybody listened beyond that. It took me six hours to produce a six minute, you know, podcast. But I think you made a great point. It was the best that we were able to do at that time. And I sort of believe in this in this Japanese philosophy called Kaizen, this idea of small, continuous improvement every single day with everything that we do. So hopefully I continue to improve with every podcast, every live video. But there's something about the live interaction that fuels the fire, like it gets me excited. And I love the dynamic of having conversation and making people feel as though they belong and that they're heard and that they matter and that they can contribute 
to this thing, this person, this community that they enjoy so much. So now I want to go back and watch, but I sort of don't want to go back and watch just to see what some of those early videos, you know, on Ustream, right? Again, it was before social media used to be like. Absolutely. And I, I love that, that Kaizen philosophy. And in fact, my goal is 10 years from now to be able to look at the things I'm doing today and cringe as well, because that just means I've continued to improve and level up. So uh, it's important just to get started. And, and I love that, that you, again, had the courage to do that. And, and I keep using that word intentionally because there's a tremendous amount of courage that's taking place for you to do what you've done. And you might not look at it that way because you were living it and you were doing it. But as an outsider, man, that's that's really admirable. So we kind of got a feel for the start. And when you first started, you know, blogs weren't even really a thing. You were new to the podcasting space. It was hard for people to even understand what that was. You know, you've got someone saying they want to advertise and that's blowing your mind. You've got the initial book. Unbelievable start. Now let's fast forward. And I did use the word dynasty very intentionally, and I'll stand behind it. You have a Disney dynasty now. So give us an overview of your offerings and what it is that you have going on now. And then let's take a peek behind the curtain at some of those things. So it, it's hard to almost describe. I sort of look at my business in in two halves, right? There's the Disney side of what I do and sort of the there's the business side of what I do because I want to help other people. So I do a lot of speaking I run my own events. I do one-on-one. I don't even like the word coaching, but one-on-one coaching and, and small group masterminds. On the Disney side, I think you need to diversify in order to succeed. And if that's one thing that COVID taught us, like having all your eggs in one basket is really not a good idea. So over the years, I've done everything from not just I've done books. I've done a series of seven audio walking tours of the parks again to connect people to that ambient audio experience and, and guide them on a tour since I can't take everyone individually. I published a print magazine. I have, uh, you know, a, a Patreon. I have a a charity component to what I do since I've started since the very beginning. Um, my dad was sick and um, I used to go take him to Sloan Kettering every day. So you know, as a community, right? This is not about, this is not about me. This is about the community. Like as a community, we've raised more than half a million dollars for Make-A-Wish because it's something that's, that's really close to me. And it's again, yeah. a testament to the people that, that make this community and family up. Um, I do a lot of live events. I do group cruises every year. So I, I, I build this around the idea of community, right? Finding ways to bring people together and not only help enhance their enjoyment and appreciation of Disney, but allow it to be more of a participatory experience than just a passive consumption experience. You're so wise. Oh man, that's incredible. And I love that you use the word community and you are, you're doing something like Disney's just kind of the platform that allows you to create societal change and to do good. And man, congratulations on raising that much money for, for make a wish for myself. Now, again, my brother who is, just as much of a Disney fan as I believe you are and, and loves Disney. I'm a little bit on the outskirts of that. I've, I went a couple times as a child and enjoyed it. And I've taken my own children there a few times and allowed Jeremy to give us kind of the runaround and, and have had an amazing experience, but I've always been blown away by just the Disney magic and, and, the culture that they've created, the type of people that they attract, how meticulous they are with every detail in that park. So give us a little bit of kind of the behind the scenes as someone who is a Disney expert uh, into what goes into to make, making it the most magical place on earth. You're right. And I think that there's no other company on the planet. Maybe you could make an argument for Apple 
that has the customer loyalty, like the brand loyalty that Disney has. Why? The, the answer is actually very simple, right? They over-deliver on their promise, right? They exceed expectations. And I actually talk about this a lot in, in presentations, whether it be for a solopreneur or a large corporation, learning from not just Walt Disney, the entrepreneur, the leader, but Disney parks themselves in terms of leveraging customer service to exceed expectations, delivering on the promises that you are making, whether you provide a product or a service, we're able to leverage things that we learn in the parks and apply them to our business. Because and, and oftentimes when I would go to Disney, I watch and I listen from a different perspective than just a guest who wants to ride attractions and obviously eat my way through Walt Disney World. I look at it from a business perspective. You know, what are the little things that Disney does? Because everything speaks, right? It's a, it's a Michael Eisner quote that everything speaks. Every thing that you see, every interaction that happens is, is a moment, right? And there's ways to sort of leverage those moments to build that loyalty. I am not the only lunatic that has moved down here to be closer to Disney. If I was really smart, I would have come down years ago and bought all the property in this area and I could have retired because a lot of people do it because they want to be close to this place. It has nothing to do with the attractions. It has to do with the culture. It has to do with the way Disney makes us feel. You smart. I appreciate that. Oh, you nailed it right there. It's, it's all about the experience and, and how we feel. That is remarkable. What does a typical week look like for you? Uh, how often are you going to the parks and, and how often are you creating content? Is this stuff that you kind of batch and, and record a, a series of podcasts and videos on a certain day of the week? Or are you kind of dripping it in throughout the, uh, throughout the week? G give us a peek behind the curtain of what a week looks like in your life. I'm going to preface this by saying, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I get this question all the time. So how many weeks out do you have your podcast recorded? I'm like, weeks? We're talking about hours usually. <laughs> uh, because in a perfect world, we wish that we could sort of follow the schedule that we put on our calendar and, and real yeah. life in the way and, and it doesn't happen. It's part of what I love is the dynamic nature of what I get to do. As time has gone on, I've tried to sort of, you know, block out time to do certain things, especially coaching and traveling and speaking and things like that. But because I've always done since day one a podcast that I would want to listen to, I don't necessarily strategic plan, strategically plan out, well, Christmas is coming in six weeks, so I need to start. I'll do the Christmas show as we start getting closer to Christmas. Sure. I will often sort of take an idea that I have that week or think about a guest that I want to have that week or the next week. So much like the content that I share on social, it is and I hate the fact that authenticity is a, is a buzzword, but it is completely authentic because it's yeah. what I am feeling and doing at that moment. Mm. I don't really schedule things. As Twitter, sometimes I'll just sort of batch, you know, some old sure. stuff, but that's just more of almost a, a broadcast than a conversation. But Instagram and Facebook, anything on social are very, very authentic as they happen moments. And even really the podcast and live video is as well. I often won't know until the day or the week of what I'm going to do or talk about. Oh man, I love that. And I love your approach. And it's incredibly stressful, by the way. But, but I'm sure it. that it is. But you know, and you hit it on the head. Authentic may be kind of a buzzword, but there's a reason it's a buzzword. There's a lot of truth to it and there's a lot of value behind it. And that is certainly a word that I, I would use to describe you. Uh, this will actually air after the fact, but in 
a week and a half, I'm actually coming down to run the Disney 10K and half marathon, oh, uh, which will be fun. Uh, Jeremy and I have rented an Airbnb house. So his family, my family and our parents, we're all going to have a little Stein family reunion. And I'll be the only one getting up at four in the morning to run those two races because the, the start times are at five. So very much looking forward to uh, seeing the Disney parks that early in the morning in such a serene experience. So um, yeah, I'm excited for that. This was so much fun and I, I can't thank you enough for everything that you've shared. Um, I'm rooting for you, man, and, and just love what you've built. Uh, any any last things or last ideas you'd like to share uh, before we put a bow on this and say our goodbyes? Well, thank you very much for for inviting me on, and and you've been so incredibly generous and kind with with your time and your comments. Um, I think sort of think about what we talked about before this idea of of what if, uh, leverage that, uh, and do what you love so you don't have those regrets. As you can see, I'm a big believer in in choosing the good, um, in in who and what you do, and uh, I sincerely appreciate your brothers. So thank you very much. Awesome. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game and provided useful insight on how you can maximize the unseen hours. If you found this episode helpful, would you be open-minded to supporting the show? Would you be kind enough to share it with a friend or colleague? Would you take 30 seconds and leave us a rating and review? Those two things help support the show's mission and message more than you realize. And don't ever forget, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. If I can ever be of service to you or your organization, please visit allensteinjr.com or strongerteam.com for a variety of speaking and coaching resources.